Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. And today, we are joined by a pal of mine from Nashville, Tennessee. He's written for loads of publications, among those uh, Modern Drummer, Bass Guitar Magazine, Drummer UK, Team Rock, and one of my personal favorites, Metal Hammer. He's also got another book coming out this summer, uh, and if it's anything like his first one, Midnight Jesus, it's going to be great. His name is Mr. Jamie Blaine. How you doing, my man? Brother, it is so good to be with you on this program, man. I've been looking forward to this. Awesome. And, um, there's nothing I love more than talking about rock and roll. So That's why you're here, my friend. I'm excited, man. been excited about this. Awesome. Me too. Me too. We always have good chats. So listen, uh, there's something we need to talk about. Yeah? Crocus. <laughs> uh, I could do the whole podcast about Crocus if you want. <laughs> So in, in, in Crocus is kind of funny for me, you know, in, in, I think in one of my books, I said Crocus is for that guy who cracks his neck in a crowded elevator. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. <laughs> I never really got Crocus. I, I, you know, I'm empathetic, but I don't know. Is there more to Crocus? Well, here's my take on Crocus. Um, they've sort of aged as these sort of underdogs. Uh-huh. I mean, they dressed so goofy and they looked <laughs> so goofy and they were really... You, you got the impression they were trying hard. Oh, yeah. These were, not, these were not cool guys. No. And, you know, in the time, it was like, gosh, what a bunch of dorks. <laughs> but years later, there's something endearing about that sort of effort and not being cool. Yeah. Um, so there's something lovable about Crocus. You know, they're, they're, they're kind of trying to be ACDC, but they're in this era of hair metal and throwing your guitar around um now that being said if you ask me is there more to crocus i think screaming in the night is just a classic it's a great song yeah i mean the video is just goofy as all get out but i liked long stick goes boom i liked um i liked a lot of their earlier stuff Uh so yeah man i enjoy crocus and it's uh you know, you got to root for the underdog. So when did Crocus get started? They were they were um, a late seventies band, right? Yeah, I'm gonna say they were probably seventy eight and sort of starting in that we're uh, influenced by Sweet. In fact, I think they did an early cover of Ballroom Blitz. Yeah, they did. Um, yeah, those rock bands that came in in the late seventies and then sort of evolved into that early eighties. Yeah. Um, swell of metal. You know, people think of of the late eighties swell of metal, which was you know, Poison and, and Cinderella and, mm-hmm. and all of that. But there was another kind of a boom of metal in the early 80s. Uh, you know, the Ozzy solo records. Yeah. Pre-Screaming for Vengeance. So metal hit twice in the 80s, and Crocus was in that first class. And so you saw a lot of those bands who were kind of struggling to find their identity in the late 70s. So. Yeah. And, you know, to that point, even in the early or in the mid 80s, you know, and Aussie would be a great example of that. Two great solo records. And then, you know, in the in the mid 80s, struggled a little bit with the ultimate sin and the, the mad housewife thing. <laughs> you know, Absolutely. And so many of them did. When you came from the 70s to just have MTV just punch you in the face, you know, in the mid 80s and fashion wise and sound wise, it yeah. was just really bizarre. I think even outside the the metal genre, a lot of a lot of seventies bands struggled to find their way and to you know struggle to to figure out who they were in the eighties and how they were going to adapt. You could sure. think of a million bands. Sure, I mean even uh, you know I'm riffing off the top of my head because it's the most fun way to talk about it. 
but even the beloved ACDC, who yeah. think, you know, my, my thing about ACDC is to say, man, they looked the same in, you know, 78, 88, 98, 2008, mm-hmm. you know, and probably will look the same, you know, next year. But that's not really true. And we see in, the, in that late 70s, they were almost this sort of, they, they were more glam influenced. And you've got Bon Scott wearing, you know, schoolgirl dresses. Yeah. And, you know, Angus is wearing capes and being super Angus. And they were, you know, they're wearing these very much uh, the New York Dolls, the that sort of, they had that look at first, even ACDC. So. Yeah. And ACDC in the 80s as well. I mean, struggled with fly on the wall, you oh, know. Gosh, yeah. You know what I mean? So I just feel like yeah. a lot of those bands, like 1980 was this Judas Priest, you know, strong in the early 80s, and then right around, say, 84, 85, 86, kind of felt like they lost their way a little, you know, with, with Turbo Lover, stuff like that. Well, I'm going to give myself away as a total, you know, metal dork and historian here, but Judas Priest, when they put out the, the Turbo Lover era, Yep. Their marketing for that was these these posters and these ads to radio stations and record stores that said Judas Priest is not heavy metal. Really? And, you know, it got the big red circle with the slash through it. Judas Priest is rock and roll. Really? And so for some reason, I mean, you know, the probably the most metal band of all time, yeah. you know, arguably. Yeah. Very aggressively tried to market themselves as not metal in that wow. decade and and they did what so many of the 80s bands did they used more keyboards guitar you know, synthesizers yeah yeah so it's hard for us to accurately understand i guess what the pressures were to conform or or get on mtv or get on or whatever in that era yeah but yeah it, it sidetracked a lot of bands even bands like acdc and judas priest i mean geez you know if you think of anybody as as having firm convictions it's those two bands yeah absolutely but all right. Well, listen. Uh, you have got a list of songs here, and some yes, some very very excellent selections uh, that I'd like to get into right now. So the first one that you've got is uh, "Solitude" by Black Sabbath. Yes, yes. I, I don't I don't know if my memory is playing this out accurately, but at least it's the story to tell. And Black Sabbath was probably the first rock band metal band that I was exposed to. Okay. I, I, I had I had heard and seen Kiss earlier, but you know, as it's sort of become the popular way to look at it, to me Kiss as a kid was the same as seeing Superman or Batman or Spider Man. I did not identify with them first as a rock band as much as I did cartoon characters. Completely and that's no agree. knock on Kiss. Yeah. Yeah. So Sabbath was the first thing I heard. I had this uncle who had been to, to uh, in Vietnam and, and I guess had a lot, you know, exposed to a lot of bad things. And he would sit in the front room and just sort of listen to Sabbath's master of reality and, and zone out, I guess. Wow. And I can remember at a very early age being at, at, um, at my aunt's house and being in the kitchen and hearing those songs come through and it just stopping me in my tracks and thinking, I've never heard anything like this. This this was certainly not like anything you heard on the radio. Mm-hmm. And just being so intrigued by the sound, whether it was that coughing intro to Sweet Leaf, <laughs> you know, I mean, for a you know a seven or eight year old kid, that was just it was just something that captivated me, and it 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 drew me in so much. We snuck in, me and my cousin snuck in later that night and got that record, snuck it into his room and listened to it. You really, know, this little kitty kitty record player, and listened to the whole thing. I mean, stayed up really late just listening to all of it. Yeah. And and, and that, that remains probably my favorite Sabbath record. 
Yeah. You know, although Sabbath is a band that, that they have any number of their records while I'm listening to it is my favorite Sabbath. <laughs> but, but, well, I mean, to me, that's a sound, you know, that's a sign of what you love. It's while I'm listening to it, this is my favorite record. You know? Agree. Agree. But, um, Master of Reality, definitely a classic, definitely was influential to me. Um, living in the Bible Belt South mm-hmm. and seeing what to me looked like very religious lyrics uh, that were printed on the back cover of that album. Yeah. And Solitude, I remember, was just, I can remember even at that young age, feeling like this is a guy whose heart is hurting. I don't, I don't know how to describe it because I was not capable of any of those, you know, of defining any of those things at that age, but I just remember, and it seemed very real to me, yeah. about this guy who was singing this song, and it still does. I think there is a conviction and an authenticity in Ozzy's voice, especially in that song, that just really stands the test of time. And, yeah. and to me, I picked that song, of all the Sabbath songs, and as influential as Sabbath has been to me, I picked that song because when you describe heavy as a band, you know, and Sabbath is definitely the heaviest of the heavy, mm-hmm. it sometimes gets misconstrued as loud or fast or a lot of aggressive in the guitars aggressive but solitude by sabbath is definitely a heavy song yeah and to me even though it's it's a very slow song it's a very soft song it's a very what some would call a mellow song Mm -hmm. and the reason that it's heavy the reason sabbath is the heaviest of the heavy is because they're emotionally heavy it's such an emotionally heavy song it's that weight, brother. It's that gravity, and that's why it works for me. Well said. I, I completely agree with that. Absolutely. I love that. I love that song myself, and that's that's a fantastic album. But you know, to your point, you can go through right from Sabbath's first record all the way, you know, to Sabotage, and I could listen to any one of those records and say, yeah, this is my favorite Sabbath record right now. Yeah, Volume Four, Sabotage, even Thirteen, their last one. I, while I'm listening to it, I think, my gosh, man, to, to do this nearly 50 years after you started yeah and still be this powerful i think that's a testament to where they come from and the authenticity they're still those guys so you can say you know we're all in our late 60s now maybe you can't play as hard or as fast but you can still play that heavy yeah and and that's why it works for me that's why their their first record works and that's why their last record works yeah because they do it with feeling i completely agree Absolutely. You know, it's it's that's a great point, and it's hard for me to watch these bands, you know, be closer to the ends of their careers than they are to the beginning because I just I feel like you know, and I've had this conversation with a couple of people previously on, on on the show that I feel like that old man standing on his lawn shaking his fist at the kids, you know, as a as a, a purist, I, I'm concerned that this sort of thing doesn't happen anymore, and these these types of bands aren't out there anymore. I feel you in every regard on that. I don't want to be that old geezer, yeah. uh, no pun intended, who says, <laughs> oh, who's like, ah, oh, you kids these days, you don't know what real music is. Exactly. There is this sort of very real concern that, listen, man, there's nobody to carry the torch. Yeah. And there, I don't, I don't see that there is. I don't, I don't want to be negative. I don't no. want to be pessimistic. But I don't see another Sabbath. I don't see another ACDC. I don't see another. Kiss or Judas Priest or I don't see anybody really that's come along in the last 20 years that can carry that torch and that is concerning yeah agree you know and and Sabbath I know just uh, 
packed it up, but uh, Maiden's still out there. I think Priest is still out there to some degree. And people keep going to the shows. They still draw. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I got to I got to see Sabbath on the farewell tour. It was it was a great show. I yeah. mean, just for whatever those guys, you know, whatever you want to say about, wow, you know, these guys are all in their late 60s. They made up for it, I guess, with the experience or the wisdom or whatever you bring to the stage when you go up there at 67, 68 years old. Yeah. And it was an incredible show. It really was. And it was packed. And there were lots of, of young kids there. And I think, you know, I think people identify with that, man. They know there's an authenticity there. Yes. And they know that there is nothing else current. Yeah. There's a place. yeah. There's a there's a, a there's a legend involved there, you know. Oh, and yeah. I, I think that you know the the really musical younger kids pick up on that and they understand that. And I wonder what that will look like in you know thirty forty years from now. That whole dynamic. I don't know, Brent. Yeah. I don't know, Brent. I think about that a lot. It's a sad state. I mean, if I have to be optimistic about it, mm-hmm. you know, ten or twenty years ago we would have said, well, you know, surely. Ozzy won't be doing this much longer. I mean, my gosh, he's 50 now. Yeah. Now, I understand Ozzy's not going to be doing it 10 or 20 years from now. No. But we've still got all these guys today, man. You know, we've still got ACDC today. We still got Guns N' Roses. I don't yep. know. I was just going to bring that one up. Yeah. Yeah. We work with what we have, right? <laughs> you know, as of today, I mean, this is so crazy. I think about this all as a kid, seven, eight, nine years old, who loved these guys. I yeah. think about it all the time. It's 2017. We've still got Ozzy. We've still got Judas Priest. We've still got ACDC. We've still got Guns N' Roses. So many of these bands are still around. Isn't that incredible? That, it's incredible. And if you want to be hopeful, the inspiration that that gave me as a kid now as an adult it gives me a lot of hope to think geez man if ozzy can be i mean he's going out again this fall yeah on a solo tour if ozzy can be 70 years old still out there doing crazy train then man i can get up tomorrow and keep going too see that's that's a fantastic statement you're right it's, it's inspirational yeah oh man geez to see these guys still doing it to, i mean geez to see angus young still out there in his schoolboy outfit yeah you know shorts and no shirt yeah i mean you know yeah he lost some of his hair but man he doesn't care he's still out there rocking it exactly and giving it 100 percent. and dude that gives me a lot of hope yes you know? no me too so completely agree yeah. well said who would have ever thought we would have got that out of the package exactly you know back when you're listening to them in in whatever it was 81 or 82 right yeah yeah, yeah and absolutely. they'd already been around for 10 years at that time yeah, well, it, yeah, it had been around quite a while. I mean, I got into these, you know, some, a lot, most of these bands had been around a long time. By the time I got to them when I was a kid, I was kind of handed handed it down, you know, from older cousins and, you know, kids and, yeah. you know, in the neighborhood and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, I, I can remember being a kid, you know, junior high and so, and the, the idea was these guys have already been around a long time, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, and geez, man, Ozzy's in his mid-30s now. Isn't it time for him to hang us up and, you know, get a real job? Or, you know, and, you know, while we're mentioning this, geez, I mean, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards are yes. still doing it. Yeah, yeah. You know, they're older than my parents, and they're still rocking, so. That is incredible, truly incredible. It really is. Yeah, man. Well, good for them, and good on them. So, um, your next tune here is uh, yeah. Snowblind, one of my personal favorites by Ace Frehley, yeah. who I was absolutely yeah. obsessed with as a kid. <laughs> oh my gosh, man. It's, it, it's impossible to 
to put into words the influence of Kiss in yes. my life. If that sounds ridiculous or silly, you know, Chuck Klosterman made a great statement in, I think, Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs, where he says, I literally spent every day, all day, thinking about Kiss and Motley Crue. <laughs> and, and, and I read that, and I was like, that was me when I was a kid. And that me. Huh? And, I, and I still, I mean, Kiss has sort of seen me through my entire life so far. What a gift, man. Yeah. So it was very hard to pick a song. I mean, Kiss has hundred plus songs that I just absolutely love. But um, for somebody who has sort of uh, studied their history and sort of the details of their career, and mm -hmm. I picked Snowblind because to me that was such a key point in the timeline of Kiss because prior to Snowblind, uh, Kiss was thought of mainly as these two very aggressive front men, Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley, yeah. and these two other guys that are kind of quite a bit down the ladder from Gene and Paul. Yeah. Uh, Gene and Paul run the group. They sing the songs. They drive the group. They're the brains behind the group. That was sort of the mentality. And everything changes when you get to cut three on side one of Ace Frehley's solo record. Absolutely. I would try to imagine, you know, Gene and Paul's sort of what's going on in their head that first time they're listening to Ace's solo record. <laughs> you know? I mean, it had to be just like, oh, crap. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, panic. You know, it's New York Groove, and it's like, I mean, as awesome as New York Groove is, it's like, ah, okay, Ace is doing a cover song, it's cool, whatever, and Speeding Back to My Baby is kind of, I mean, it, it's its cool, and it's kind of cute, and it's, you know, it's a song about his wife, okay, but man, when, when that third song kicks in, yeah. and it's just so, just cool, man. I oh, mean, yeah. Ace was effortlessly cool in a way that Paul and Gene never could be. And you just hit it right on the head, Jamie. I've, I've been saying that for so long, that Ace Frehley just had that swagger, and he had that thing. In 1978, that guy was the coolest guy on earth. He just was. Oh, and, my God. He was. And, you know, Gene Simmons wanted to have that so bad. Paul Stanley, you know, thought that he might have had it, felt like he had it maybe a little bit. But Frehley had that thing, and that's what yeah. I loved about him. You know, he didn't have to be at the front of the stage in front of Stanley and Simmons. I kind of liked that he wasn't. You know, he had that, that, that mysterious kind of, yes. you know, he, do you know what I mean? I, yeah, are you kidding, man? This is. <laughs> I was so obsessed. Is, yeah. You know, this is what I spend way too much of my adult life still thinking about. <laughs> but well, I, you know, he was dude, he was just my hero when I was a kid. I, Me too. You'd watch that guy, and then you'd try to articulate. Okay, why does why does this you know person mean so much? Yeah. To me, there was always so many life lessons in rock and roll, and you can start teasing those out as you get older. Yeah. And man, some people have to work hard and try, and that's okay. But some people have just got it, man, and they yeah. don't have to try. And that was Ace. You're exactly right. He didn't have to be the front man, and probably it's better than that he wasn't. Agree. You know, he could just be just stumbling around back out of the spotlight, and he's still the coolest guy on stage. Oh, yeah. You knew that that just burned Simmons and Stanley so badly. <laughs> but I think it really drove them. Yeah. You know, I, I think they maybe had a clue. Because, I mean, here's Gene. He's coming out with, you think about this, every KISS member, they had, they could legitimately believe that their solo record would be the best. Gene is the face of KISS. Yeah. He's the brains behind KISS. He's got this big solo record with 
Lou Reed and Cher and he's doing Disney songs and he's got Joe Perry and yeah. and you know it's just this big industrial affair and, and and Paul's probably thinking hey man I'm the guy behind Love Gun I write all the songs I sing all the songs I'm the best looking guy yeah. in the band you know he's got all this elaborate poetry in his and yeah. and you know it's this very sort of star child love thing and then and Peter even Peter can say hey man I had the band's biggest hit. I had Song of the Year. Um, Beth. No, yeah, Beth. If there's anybody who's an underdog in this race, it's poor old Ace Fraley. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, what, what's, what's he going to do? Yeah. And to blow, blow those other guys out of the water? Yeah. You know? They might have suspected that, but when you get to that cut on his solo record, and yeah. pretty much every cut after that on yeah. his solo record, yeah. it's out in the open, dude. There's it no is. hiding it anymore. I this is who this guy is, and he's flat out, man. Absolutely. I completely agree. And, you know, I, I I used to listen to that record. I swear I wore that record out as a kid. I would play it over and over and over again. I've said this to you before. You know, I think that the music on that record was the way that KISS fans wanted KISS to sound. Because it was, yes. in, in my opinion, it was the most legitimate rock and roll offered in, in, in all of those four solo records. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. It's just, it's just got it, man. It just rock. There's no excuses. You don't have to analyze it. You don't have to try to make it something that it's not. Yeah. It's not trying too hard, which trying too hard is not rock and roll. Exactly. It, it just is. Yeah. You know, and it sounded exactly like you wanted it to sound. Yeah. Oh yeah. It, it is the most satisfying of all Kiss records. Yeah. You know, without a doubt. I'm going to go back and listen to that when we're, when we're done speaking here. I'm going to go and throw that record up. I listen to it all the time when that song hits especially it's still i mean ozone and, and just all of those cuts yeah, i'm in need like, of love gosh, man how is this so cool yeah. it just holds up so well yeah but here's an, a very adult diversion and, and forgive me i'm gonna name drop here because no please go ahead working as a uh, the reason I got into rock journalism is is definitely to appease my 10-year-old self. <laughs> <laughs> so, dude, I'm dropping names. So here is a very, you know, you grow up and the lessons kind of get deeper and deeper. Yep. So I get to interview Ace Fraley. I'm talking to Ace. Ace is very sweet, very wow. cool, very nice guy. So I'm talking to Ace, and we're talking about his his solo record. So Ace tells me, he says, well, yeah, Curly, you know, I was I was holding <laughs> You know, I was holding songs back, you know, from my solo record, starting about, you know, 76 or 77. And <laughs> I'm like, okay. And I started thinking about that. Well, wait a minute. That's not fair. Mm. How much better would Gene and Paul's solo records have been if they would have held back Christine 16 and yeah. Colin Dr. Love and Love Gun yeah. and Take Me? So that was a little dirty of Ace. To go, you know, I'm going to hold all these great songs back for my solo record and let you guys carry the load yeah. on Love Gun and Rock and Roll Over. Yeah. And I'm not taking anything away from Ace. I'm glad he did. But there is, you know, there's a lesson to be learned there from both sides to me. So. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. I didn't know that he did that. I didn't either until he told me. I wonder if there was maybe a little bit of animosity because I think that obviously there's a pecking order in that band in terms of whose songs got onto what record. So, yeah. you know, so maybe maybe that yeah. was the trigger there. To me, it's so interesting to go back and get into those kind of details of a band you loved. Yeah. You know, of their history. 
You know, because, man, I mean, you grow up, when you're a kid, you think, man, this is just one big happy family. Yeah. You have this sort of idealistic vision of, of what the band is like. Yeah. And when you grow up, you know, and, and you're, you're married and you're trying to deal with family and you're working with people, you learn that you can like people and love people and still you just want to strangle them sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. That's the reality of relationships. And sometimes the things that drive you crazy are what make it work. So... I think when you look back at KISS, there is a lot of interpersonal dynamics. Okay, I use that word. That's not a very rock and roll word. (laughs) But if you look at the dynamics of those guys, the very thing that broke them up and killed them also in their heyday was an asset. Yeah. You know, it was the way they worked. It was Fraley's sort of effortless cool drove Paul and Gene, just the way those four guys worked together and the chemistry they had that made it great, made it what it was. Yeah, and as leaders, to their credit, Simmons and Stanley, I think, probably kept the train on the track most of the time when, you know, when when Frehley and Chris were off the rails. You had to have those two guys. I mean, you know. You can come back around and say, well, you know, those, you know, Jewish businessmen, they're being pricks and whatever. Yeah. That's what it took to make sure they made it to the shows on time. And the the record got released on time and you got things taken care of and people got paid. And, you know, if you'd have had four Fraley's in the band, (laughs) it wouldn't have lasted two years. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) They wouldn't. It's true. So, I, yeah, I mean, the, the the gift of KISS, just it keeps on giving, man. They're, they're just such a fascinating band to study um, in that regard. Yeah, I think a lot of people would definitely agree with that. You're right. Yeah, yeah. So next on your list, my man, we have got uh, a Ted Nugent number, a Stranglehold. Ah, <laughs> uh, Ted. <laughs> Terrible Ted. See, that's, well, it's a good place to have Ted because, I mean, I categorize a lot of bands in i'm like is this a five song band a 10 song band 20 song band 50 100 song sabbath and kiss are in the 100 plus category for me as far as songs that i love and i absolutely would be essential for me nugent quite honestly is probably less than five songs that are essential for me i'm not a big fan of a lot of his work Mm -hmm. i'm not a you know I'm certainly not a fan of his, you know, his sort of the way he runs his mouth about politics and all of that stuff that is yeah. not very rock and roll. I agree. But so I'm a kid, I'm listening to the radio, they're playing one of these, you know, we'll say it's King Biscuit Flower Hour. Yep. And, you know, and the announcer comes on next, right after these commercial breaks, we'll be right back to the South Kentucky Fair with Ted Nugent. <laughs> and they come back from the break, straight into Ted, and he goes, Look at you, Kentucky. Look at you, Kentucky. One time, Kentucky. I'm going to tell you something right now, Kentucky. I'm going to play the sexiest guitar lick that's ever been played. <laughs> and so I remember, I'm like, so I'm like getting like really close to the radio, and I'm like, did he say the sexiest guitar lick of all time? What, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, come on. That's a, that's a, what a bold. It's a bold statement, yeah. Yeah, that's a bold statement right there. Uh, what, what could this be? And then for like the next nine minutes of stranglehold, he absolutely proves it. <laughs> I mean, for for whatever other blather comes out of that dude's mouth, stranglehold is it's it, man. Yeah. I don't. I man. If nothing else, put him in the Hall of Fame or whatever you want to call it. If he didn't ever do anything else but stranglehold. Jeez, man, Stranglehold is a monster. Yeah. That is one of the, whether you want to call it sexiest rock and roll classic riff. Oh, jeez, man. 
Yeah, he's. Uh, I, I always thought he was a really um, talented guitar player. You know, a lot of people would disagree with me on that, but uh, I always gave Ted no, props. I, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't disagree with you on that, man. He is a monster guitar player. I wish he would shut up and play the guitar. Yeah, me too. I'm like, dude, talk ninety percent less and just play that <laughs> guitar. Because, and I don't want to stray too far off from this point because I know we got other songs to get to. But the reason I put the Nuge on this list is he captures a certain FM classic rock sound yeah. in his guitar. That I, I mean, I might say without thinking about it too much, that he is the best as far as that. If I'm riding in an IROC Z Camaro with the top down and it's, you know, if I'm going back in time to 1978 and cruising the strip, I'm putting on Stranglehold. Yeah. Uh, it's just that Gibson, Les Paul, Sustain. Yes. Just everything, man. And yeah. that's why he's on the list. Well because done. Because that song, if you want to say that song changed my life, dude, that song changed my life. Really? Oh, dude, Stranglehold. Oh. <laughs> you know. I love the passion, my man. <laughs> so, so next on your list, you've got uh, One Track Mind by Motorhead. God bless Lemmy Kill Mr. Man. Oh, He's, yeah. Uh, another guy who just, who meant so much to me yeah. in, in my life, who shaped my life so much. There was something about him, man. I can remember seeing, uh, I, I picked One Track Mind, which is not a well-known Motorhead song, Yeah. but... I picked it because that was the first Motorhead song I'd ever heard. It was the first thing I saw. There was a video for it. So, I mean, I imagine it had to be MTV or, or something. Mm -hmm. It was the middle of the afternoon, and I can just I remember flipping past channels and stopping, you know, and like, whoa, wait a minute. Who is this guy? Who is this guy in these mirror shades with this tall microphone and these big moles on his face? And yeah. just... <laughs> Man, this guy, he was just so cool and so just rugged outlaw looking. And I just remember being captivated by the image as much as the sound of yeah. this guy. His pers his persona just bled through that screen, man, yeah. in that song. Yeah. You know? Yeah, he, you know, for me, he kind of, um, he scared me a little bit as a kid. Yes. I, I remember, you know, we used to watch this thing called the Power Hour on, on uh, Canada's version of, of MTV, which was much music. And they had yeah. uh, a one a one hour segment where, devoted to you know hard rock and heavy metal, and uh, yeah. you know you'd see the usual suspects, the Motley Crue's Maidens, Priests, but then Motorhead also would pop up, and and my first experience was Ace of Spades, and I thought like this is it's it's borderline revolting for me as a kid because I'm like who is that guy? This is crazy. There's no image really. Or, there is an image, but it's the kind of anti image. It's it's not the pretty you know Motley Crue at that time theater pain whatever. It was like, look at, like, get out of the way, because you're going to get hurt. <laughs> you know, he was a very unattractive man. So. <laughs> and, 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 I say, and I say that in the most flattering way possible. Yeah. I mean, it, it worked for He was the most beautiful, ugly man. Yeah. You know? But yeah, you're right. He was, I would equate it almost to like Clint Eastwood, sort of a dirty, hairy, yeah. or, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah. There was something dangerous about this guy. Very much so. You know, you, you just got that impression, don't cross this dude. Yeah. And that was very rock and roll. And it is, like you said, it was very rock and roll in a way that you weren't seeing. I mean, you know, God bless Rob Howard, but as much leather and, and bullets and, and whatever as he had. Nobody, and I'm not picking on Rob, Judas Priest didn't seem, I don't they didn't seem real dangerous. No. I mean, I love Judas Priest, but Lemmy just, you know, he looked like he was nine feet tall anyway. Yeah. 
And, you know, the irony of that, man, and, and it's a beautiful irony. I, I got, as far as I know, we did the last interview with Lemmy. Really? Um, and, I got, and I got to do that uh, just a few months before he died. He was in, he was in real bad health, mm-hmm. and um, he was struggling. But again, he was so determined, man. He was out there on the road. He was giving it 100%. Wow. He wasn't complaining. He wasn't making any excuses. And he was still Lemmy. You know, he wasn't, there wasn't anything pitiful about him. He was still who he was. Mm-hmm. As frail and as sick as he was, man, he was still that guy. And, you know, in truth, man, he was such a gentleman. And he was such a sweetheart of a guy. Wow. And that doesn't take anything away from him being, you know, it's not like, ah, he wasn't dangerous. He was a pussycat. You know, he was still that guy. You know, he still had that gleam in his eye. Yeah. He was still maximum rock and roll. Yeah. But he had a lot of conviction of spirit. He knew who he was. He knew who he wasn't. He treated people well um, because that's that was just who he was. That was his conviction. Mm-hmm. So, dude, I mean, that was a bonus to see this guy at the very end of his life, to meet with him and have him be that kind and that gracious wow. and that much of somebody you could still admire you know, as an adult. That's fantastic. So, oh, man. I mean, it's one of the great gifts of my life and one of the great privileges. Yeah. You know, is to be able to do that and to see, you know, get. I mean, you can hear, but when you see, when you sit and you look and you see up close somebody, to see that character. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What a gift. And all of their music, man. Just, you know, to me, they were still, their last record they put out was a killer record, man. You know, here's Lemmy at 70 singing Victory or Die and, and doing it with that same conviction in his voice. Yeah. So, and, and he was still a funny guy, man. He still, we laughed a lot. And I got to bring up that I saw one track mine when I was a little kid. Yeah. You what know? did he say? He was like, oh, that's one nobody ever says one track mine, mate. Oh, you know? <laughs> he, he got a kick out of that. And, and the, you know, and then he started talking about blues and. And, you know, how much of an influence that the blues were on Motorhead. And that was, you know, in essence, just a blues song turned up on 10 on Marshall. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Great song, great man. Yeah. Oh, thanks for sharing that that story. I think that's great. In my mind, I, as I said, I didn't really understand Lemmy as a kid. But I did come to understand later on that um, he did embody the real rock and roll ethos. And he was, you know, he was one of rock's real kind of genuine outlaws. You know, so it's yeah. that's fantastic that you could spend some time with them before he passed. Yeah, yeah, man, what a gift. Very cool. So, so on your list next, you've got uh, Don Felder's Heavy Metal. <laughs> <laughs> man, another song from when I was a kid that just made such an impression. You know, I, I mean, I'm one of those guys, when I talk about rock and roll, there's, there's a lot of nostalgic value still involved in it and absolutely I find ways for it to still be meaningful yep. in my life and if you want to talk about looking at dynamics and who man the eagles i mean yeah you know if, if you're going to do a case study of these things the eagles and fleetwood mac are about as crazy as you're going to get yeah dysfunctional families oh yeah um but i was not a fan of country eagles but when the eagles added joe walsh and especially don felder yep then I became an Eagles fan. My favorite Eagle is Don Felder. Mm-hmm. And that's not taking anything away from, from Henley. Dude, I love Henley, and I definitely love Joe Walsh. Yeah. But Don had a little more of, of kind of when we were talking about Ace, of that effortless cool and that swagger. Yeah. And he just had that sound to his guitar. And, and it was, I guess, looking at it now, it does parallel the Ace story in that when he broke off and puts out this solo song, 
to me, for my ears and my money, that was so much cooler than anything that the Eagles did. And I don't say that as a, as a knock on the Eagles. I just say that it was a different level of rock, and it was much more of what I was looking for. Yeah. It was just so cool sounding. You know? Yeah. It was kind of an unexpected departure for Felder, too, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's after they take a... Once again, I, you know, I'm, I'm into my geeky rock historian study thing. <laughs> but, you know, I think they had done the long run. It was not as big of a hit as Hotel California. Yeah. I think there probably was some jealousy and some dissension coming from Henley and Fry because Don Felder wrote Hotel California, which was their biggest, hugest hit by far. Yeah. Um, that probably maybe fed his ego a little bit. So he's like, hey, I'm going to step up. I want a little bit more of this pie. And then it just, you know, after the long run, they just closed the doors and said, screw this. You know, yeah. we're done. Yeah. Yeah. Felder went, I think, pretty much straight from that uh, into the studio and cut two songs for the heavy metal soundtrack. Mm hmm. And really, you know, that title track, you can essentially say is an Eagles song. He's got Timothy B. Schmidt and yes. Don Henley on background vocals. Yeah. Uh, to me, it sounds very much like an Eagles song, just that much cooler. Yeah. You know, like an Eagles song in space, which is exactly what you would want something <laughs> from the heavy metal soundtrack to sound like. Exactly. So when you asked for this list, we were uh, I'm actually working on a thing with Sean Bodwin and Joe Daly. Yeah. Uh, sort of this this cultural analysis uh, of the heavy metal soundtrack and just what a bizarre piece of work it was and what a strange time it was yeah. that it came out in. And yeah. It's a really schizophrenic soundtrack, and somehow it works. You know, to me, the highlight of it is the Don Felder cut. Mm. I think it sums up the you know the attitude that the movie was looking for. It's like there's a lot more to this guy than you thought. Yeah, I, I, I love that record. It, it confused me a little bit as a kid. And I was at that age where I was, you know, kind of really just opening my eyes to music and the, the various genres and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of variance on that record. You have to edit me here because we'll go off and I'll be off into the... <laughs> you know, I'll be doing my professor rock and roll thing here. But, right. you know, it was an era when soundtracks were sort of seen as a, you know, get all the artists you love for one low price. Yeah. So that was seen as a bargain, you know. Wow, you're getting so much music in one record, or two records in that case. And soundtracks were huge in that era. And Irving Azoff did the heavy metal record. He did Urban Cowboy the year before that one, which was a huge smash. Yep. He did Fast Times at Ridgemont High the year after, which was, you know, all three of those records were, were big successes. Yep. And all three of them, to a certain degree, had that same schizophrenic quality that we look at now and go, man, what were they thinking? What's going on here? Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you kind of look at the market at the time and, and sort of the incentive for people to buy those records, it, it makes a little more sense. It just doesn't translate that well after all this time. But great record. Great record. I think so. Yeah. Weird record. Really weird record. Yeah. Well, weird movie. Really weird movie. <laughs> <laughs> so it kind of works. So, Jamie, next you've got uh, Xanadu by Rush. I see, we did this a while back. I thought you were going to say Xanadu by Olivia Newton-John. <laughs> that soundtrack. Nope. That actually features Olivia Newton-John and the Tubes together. Really? Um, yeah. Uh, another schizophrenic soundtrack in yeah. ELO. But Rush, Xanadu. Um, Rush is a good foil for all these others because Rush met me at that other side of my personality. Look, I, I could never be as cool as Don Felder and Ace Fraley. That was not in the cards for me. Mm -hmm. 
but I was kind of that secretly smart in school yep. guy. And Rush, they kind of seemed dorky like that. So I started playing drums in school band as early as I could. I think it was fourth grade, okay. uh, fifth grade, and I, and I did quite well in it. And I remember the older kids who were like, you know, seniors and played the drums. They would like, they would talk a lot about Neil Peart, like all drummers do and should. Yeah. And at first I was like, I don't like prog rock. I don't, I don't like Genesis. I didn't like Yes. I didn't like Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Um, it seems kind of pretentious. I like my rock to be a little more stupid. Yeah. And so I was not into Rush. And then I saw, it had to be from Exit Stage Left, I think. I saw a, a video live of Xanadu. Mm-hmm. So here are these three guys who all look like MIT professors. <laughs> um, the two guys up front are both playing double neck guitars. Yep. And the one guy is also playing a double neck guitar while singing, while playing keyboards, uh, a, a, while playing keyboards, while playing a foot pedal synth. Uh-huh. And the drummer is back there with like a 278 piece drum. Oh kit, yeah. And they're singing this song, which is like, from Kubla Khan, some, you know, novel or fantasy novel or something. Yeah. So the take is like, this should be like the dorkiest thing ever. <laughs> Flowing robes, the whole deal. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's, this should not be anywhere near cool. Yeah, yeah. But for some reason, it just really works, man. It's awesome instead. Yeah. These guys had a very sort of humble cavalier attitude they didn't take themselves too seriously because mm-hmm. you couldn't you know with with doing something that potentially no. pompous you know exactly. you're, you're gonna sing a 12 minute song about kubla khan and xanadu and, and be that musically adept you better kind of be down to earth <laughs> but so from a guy who was started playing music very young it was so impressive that i could not deny it yeah you know, it was just incredible. Just, it was unbelievable. You, I, you know, it's like you're watching it thinking, I can't believe what I'm seeing. Yeah. Very influential in that regard. I went from there and thought, okay, the most musically impressive thing I can do is, is play all the instruments. So I started playing bass. Yeah. I started playing guitar. I started trying to play the keyboards and I'm in high school now. I thought the most impressive thing I can do is record an entire Rush song by myself. <laughs> So, uh, you know, wow, I ought to be in ninth grade again. So <laughs> I didn't have the chops to tackle Xanadu. Yeah. Uh, so finally I tried Red Bark Chetta, but when I did it, it sounded like John Denver or something. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was too, it was too country the way it was coming off for me. So I finally settled on Limelight, which, you know, even Rush will tell you as their songs go is it's not like a bunch of let's go from you know, to seven, eight the time and all of this sort of weird yeah. stuff. So uh, worked on it for about a month, played every part. You know, I had an older friend in, in band who I trusted to listen to it. And yep. he, he listened. He didn't say anything until it was over. <laughs> and when it was over, he looked at me without smiling and said, that sounds like a sack full of cats being whipped by a witch. Uh. And, <laughs> And that was the that was exactly what I needed to hear because that was the end of my one man rush experiment. <laughs> and looking back, it really did. It, it really did sound like Dude, that. that's I mean, a, who can sing like Getty Lee? Yeah, like Getty Lee, exactly. You know? That's a that's a massive yeah. undertaking. So I, I wouldn't necessarily yeah, feel I, bad I, about I, that. I was ambitious in my efforts. We can certainly say that. <laughs> But, and here's the catch, if I can bring it back around to why Rush is on this list. Yeah. Because Rush taught me so much about music. 
if you learn to play Rush songs, they teach you so much about music, and they're oh, so yeah. inspirational in that regard. And you know, their their attitude is they're not cool, and those guys know that they're not cool, and mm-hmm. they become cool by embracing the fact that they're not cool. Yeah. And so, in their own way, they have become inspiration in the way they've handled their their fame and and you know rush has been around 40 plus years now so yeah yeah big inspiration and and still is very cool next up on the list change direction a little bit we've got prince and computer blue uh you know when you make a list you you don't want to go just so obvious and obvious and obvious you you want to kind of try to say okay what's the kind of the out of the way stuff that you pick so this, this is the stuff that makes your skin vibrate right uh, as you say, yes. Yeah. All of these songs I can still listen to and, and get goosebumps on a certain level, you know. Exactly. They still stir me musically and emotionally. And I put Prince on the on this list. I mean, we could do R&B list, we could do blues list, we could do new wave list, but put him on there because he's. I still think he's so underrated as a rock guitarist. Mm-hmm. I would put Prince up there with Slash as far as rock guitarists. I hate that his personality was such where he did not work with more rock artists. Yeah. I would have loved to have heard him work with Slash. I, I uh, think that, that that's an undeniable fact that he was an incredible rock guitar player. He could do so many other things well that it just overshadowed how good that guy was at guitar. And in essence, he was a rock guitarist. Well, it's it's that branding that happens, you know, because you had, uh, you know, Let's Go Crazy and, and his other hit little Red Corvette and stuff like that that came out around the same time as Madonna. And he was he was billed as almost sure. a, an 80s pop artist. And I had this conversation with somebody previously in another episode about Guns N' Roses. And the person said, well, Guns N' Roses is an 80s band. And I said, no, not for me. You know, when I think 80s bands, I think, you know, Culture Club and Duran Duran and Level 42. So so in that context, for somebody to describe Guns N' Roses as an 80s band kind of sounds weird for me. But I think a lot of people look at Prince like that superficially. He was not a rock guitar player for, for anybody outside the purists, maybe. But he was, he was an 80s pop star, which is kind of unfortunate. Yeah, I mean, you know, he was a really good looking guy. He had the look. You know, he just had so much package that you could ignore the um, the rock guitar because yeah. there was just so much in his arsenal. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the reason I picked Computer Blue is because it remains such an amazing song in that it's undefinable. It's rock. It's really rock. Mm-hmm. But it's punk. It's new wave. It's pop. It's and yet it's accessible, which is just bizarre. Yeah, it is just such a strange song as far as structure. And the rock guitar he plays, I mean, it's blistering, man. Yeah. You know, um, just the tone, the sound, the emotion. And, you know, it, it, I, I think it's a great thing that in sort of analyzing this guy after he's no longer with us, one of the things that a lot of people are looking to was his performance at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yes. This guy is doing nothing but playing guitar, and he just levels everybody else on stage. The best part of that clip to me is watching Jeff Lynn and Tom Petty's face. I was just going to say guys, that. Yeah, these guys are legends. This entire band has seen it all. Yeah. And yet they are watching this guy like they've never seen anything. Yeah, yeah. And for him to be able to do that to those guys and that band and that room, a room full of jaded industry, we've seen it all, nothing impresses us. For him to blow away that room, dude, that's incredible. Yeah, very good point. And it was all the emotion, man. It was just, it was nothing but the emotion in his playing. Agree. Yeah. 
All right, my man, you have one song left, and it is a doozy. It's, uh, All right, let's hear it. It's Put Your Love in Me by the Plasmatics. Mm, man. <laughs> you know what? I put the Plasmatics on there because they've got this great record called Coup d'etat. Yes. It came out in the early 80s. Yep. And it's just one of my favorite metal records, one of my favorite rock records. I don't ever hear anybody talk about it. I don't ever hear anybody reference it. I like it. it. Stands up, yeah, it stands up to me with all of those great records yeah. from that era. The Plasmatics are not a rock or metal band. Yeah. Their records before that or after that are mostly garbage. Uh, you know, I mean, I hate to say it that way, but no. they're, they're not any good. Yeah. But they did this one record that's just incredible. I mean, it just crushes you. And I still love that record. Still sounds great today. Yeah. Brutal song. Who, who, uh, uh it was it was Wendy Williams, obviously, but who's yeah. the guitar player on that? Do you know? Uh, I don't know. I should know, but I know. you got me there. No, I no, neither do I. I'm just curious. I think she had two guys in the band. I'm pretty sure, but yeah, you know, I always think of Jean Beauvoir, and I don't even know if I'm saying his name right, Jean Beauvoir, Beauvoir. Yeah. But he was the bass player, and he actually went on and, and wrote a lot of those. Um, songs with paul stanley that were hits in the 80s yes and he went on to do quite a bit more yeah but as far as the guitar player and i don't know yeah i'm gonna look that up i want to say that it was michael wagner who produced that record is that right uh yeah is he the guy that um produced except balls to the wall wall. probably the finest metal production in my opinion ever that I album. To it a couple of days ago. Yeah. It just sounds so fantastic. That's a record, and that's you know people always say, oh, turn this record up, enjoyed best at maximum volume, whatever. Balls to the Wall is one of the few records that you could fully crank and you know not not be irritated by it. It is you can step inside that record sonically. It's fantastic. Well, it's one of those few examples where it delivers everything that it promises. Yes, completely. Agree. You know. It sounds as hard and as heavy as you want it to. Yeah. It sounds as crushing as the title promises. Yeah. And it's like you said, man, it sounds great loud. I yeah. Mean, it it sounds better louder. Man. Yeah. But it's it, a killer. That, that first five or ten seconds of that song never fails to like, I'm just like, man, really? Yeah. Jeez, man, how did they do that? And why can nobody else ever seem to do it? Agree. Yeah. But, you know, Coup d'etat, I think, has a similar uh, crunch in the guitars. And like you said, it's just, it's a, it's a killer record. Yeah, I agree with you, man. It's a, um, it, it's a similar sound. I, I don't know if it's in the mix. Whatever it is, it works. Agree. All right, my man. So we have gone through your songs. That's it. I want to thank you for sharing all of the uh, awesome stories that you shared with us today and your insight. Thank you, man. This was this was my privilege, man. This was this was a lot of fun. It's it's what I enjoy most. You know, I can do this. I can do this all day, every day. Well, I'm going to call on you to do it again. You'll definitely be a recurring guest as we go down the road. Brother, I would love it. Let's do it. All right, man. We definitely will. Okay, take good care. This has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen and my special guest, Mr. Jamie Blaine. Until next time, we're out. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon worldwide. <laughs>